I was at a shoot for two days and like I realized the height of like privilege whining is me complaining about being in a shoot because I literally sat in this multi-million dollar townhouse, sat on someone's bed, looking at a monitor, having opinions on the work that everyone else was doing while I ate snacks. I'm like, and I'm exhausted from it. How obnoxious is that? Hello and welcome to Fiction Between Friends, a podcast dedicated to books and book lovers like us. I'm Josephine Angelini. I'm Lauren Sanchez. I'm Alyssa Hilfinger. And I'm Aileen Calderon. We're four childhood friends from the suburbs of Massachusetts. We've always loved to read almost as much as we love to talk to each other. We started this podcast as a way to celebrate how a really good book can come into your life and change it. So if you're looking for fun and engaging conversations about books, stick around. This is Fiction Between Friends, and we're glad you've joined us. Welcome back. This is Season 2, Episode 11. I'm Josephine Angelini, and joining me are my dear friends, Aileen Calderon. Hi. Lauren Sanchez. Hello. And Alyssa can't be with us today, but we have an amazing guest filling her spot. Another dear friend, New York Times bestselling author, Beth Revis. Hello, Beth. Hi, Hi, thank you for having me. Just to give you all some background on Beth, she is, as I just mentioned, the New York Times bestselling author of Across the Universe. Her latest novel is The Princess and the Scoundrel, which comes out in August and is set in the Star Wars universe. Here's a hint. The war is not over. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. Beth has also started writing for Amazon's new serialized platform, Kindle Vela. And we're going to be talking about the episodic series she has there called Museum of Magic. I just finished it. And I hate you because I'm on episode. I was like episode 18. I was like, that's it. I'm at the bottom. <laughs> it hasn't been written yet. <laughs> I know. So tell us a little bit about Kindle Vela. Kindle Vela is Amazon's response to serialized platforms like Radish or Wattpad or things like that. So if you've heard of those programs, you get the same general guideline of it, but it's all built into Amazon. So if you have a Kindle or the Amazon app, you can just read it straight from your phone or your e-reader. And um, it's basically one short episode at a time. I kind of split it up as chapters. And so once a week, I add a new chapter. And you had an interesting approach because I read the whole thing and I liked I could vote at the end. So it had this whole mm-hmm. choose your own adventure feel, which was so cool. But then you were using like tarot cards and dice to decide yeah. the ch- t- how, why, how. That's <laughs> such an interesting approach. Oh, thank you. Um, well, I got my my idea for this started kind of from my first serial. I did another serial called Blood and Feathers. And I that had been a novel that I had sort of written for my publisher, but they decided they didn't want a fantasy. So I shelved it for a long time and I pulled it back out. And one of my issues with it was I didn't know how I wanted it to end. And so I had most of it up and then I let readers vote basically just on some key points and a few ending pieces. And I loved like the the excitement and the involvement of having readers in it. So I designed Museum of Magic 100% to be involved with readers. So every single chapter, I start off with a tarot card and the tarot card determines like the mood or the feel of the chapter. And then every major choice that the character makes, I either do dice rolls or flip a coin or draw from a hat. And then the end choice is up to the readers to vote on, which will usually dictate how the next chapter will start. I think that's really cool. And um, I was drawn to it because I love to read tarot. Every day I pull a tarot card. And today I pulled... I didn't know three. that, Lauren. So I do. I pull three oh. usually, but I just pulled three of, three of pentacles today. What's a pentacle? In a love reading, it can <laughs> signify like stability. So I really, I was drawn to that. So that was very cool. So the voting thing was your own idea. That's not like a built-in feature of the Kindle Vela? 
No, I mean, you can, the, anybody can do a vote at it, but a lot of people will use it to be like, what was your favorite part of the chapter or something like that? But I use it to help dictate what the next chapter will be. I thought that was great because do you guys remember the choose your own adventure books from when oh, we were yeah. kids? Like you, you were crazy them. about them, Ailey. No, they're still grabs, like five. Are they really? Of them. Yeah. 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 And you always put your thumb to check the choice so you could go back and make a different choice <laughs> if you don't like the ending. Honestly, I got to say though, choose your own adventure books, they used to frustrate me because I'd be like, no, I want you to tell me how it ends. Like I really, I wanted to know what the author, like seriously, I'd be like, I know that you can come up with all these different endings, but which one is the right one? I think I was so concerned with getting it right. Like knowing that I was right, (laughs) that I like couldn't even enjoy the ride. God, that sounds so stressed out as a kid. Seriously. (laughs) fair, like I had my thumb in there because I was so competitive. I had to get the right (laughs) ending. So how did you end up doing a Kindle Vela? Like did Amazon approach you? Did you approach them like how does the whole thing work like i had never heard of it until we heard we were yeah it's a fairly it. new program it started last year um i think they announced it in the spring but the first episodes um couldn't be uploaded until i think july or so so it's not even a year old as a program and it's not open up internationally yet and um, it's only in america currently um but yeah it's, it's just a brand new program and they just announced very low-key that they were doing it and I saw the announcement. I was like, oh, well, I have a book that might be able to fit into that. And then I did Blood and Feathers. And then sh- when that ended, I shifted straight into Museum of Magic. Are you still with your publisher? Are you still doing books with them? Or I um, I have a couple of different publishers. <laughs> um, yeah. I have one book that's not been announced yet um, coming out from Sourcebooks soon. Um, and it is a historical young adult fantasy. And is co-written with another author. Um, the Star Wars book coming out from Del Rey. And I'm currently working on an adult science fiction. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, wait, before we talk about your books, can you give us a little background on you? Just tell us your sort of your history, your life story, how you got into writing, all that good oh, stuff. Oh, well, I've always wanted to be a writer. Um, I wrote my first novel in college and I wrote a book where I queried each one for 10 years and none of them got an agent. None of them went anywhere at all. Um, so I had a really, really long journey into publication. Um, but my book that got an agent in the 11th year, the 11th book I wrote was Across the Universe. And that one um, came out from Penguin Razor Bill and really literally changed my whole life. It enabled me to become a full-time writer. I had been an English teacher and then I published like seven or eight more novels. Um, with Penguin Razor Bill and also with Star Wars. And uh, now I'm branching out into new genres. Oh my, so you literally got your book deal. You're like, see you later, kids. I'm <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did hang around and finish up the semester. So there's was- that. And then um, Across the Universe is basically a murder mystery in space. And I wrote, I predominantly wrote the whole thing while I was still a teacher. And so when you have a murder mystery, you also have to kill people. And every named character that dies is a former student of mine. <laughs> got out, they were they would come running to me in the hall. Like, kill me in your novel, kill me in your novel. So you'd be surprised how kids. flattered people are when you kill them in one of your books. Like when I I did that to Matt, you guys, I did that to Matt Mitchell in my first series. In my st- I like named a character Matt, and I was like, sorry, dude, I'm gonna kill you. And then you made me an already dead character. I didn't even get killed. I was yeah, you're gonna dead. get killed. I know, right? <laughs> you're already dead. But we're gonna like, see you. Okay, at least at least I come back a little bit. But that's what I feel like if you did that nowadays and it was like you could see the headline teacher killing students in but you know, it's like everybody. <laughs> well, they were all competing out. to see who had the best death. <laughs> I mean, when you kill them in space, there's a lot of options here. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you get involved with the whole Star Wars 
book series? Like, did your agent set you up with that? Or did you, did you say, I want this, send me out for that? Or I, I didn't even know to ask for it. Like it was one of those pie in the sky yeah. things that I was like, oh, you, you must have to be really important to get there. And I obviously am not. Um, but then uh, I actually got into it with Rebel Rising, which is the Rogue One um, junior novel. It's actually more of a YA novel. If you've seen the movie Rogue One, mm-hmm. um, Jen Erso as a little girl gets put in a hatch and then it like blacks out and then she's an adult. It like skips. My book is everything that happened in that skip. And when I got offered it, I I didn't even know it was an option. And my agent called me and they're like, oh, Star Wars um, wanted to see if you would be interested in writing for them. And I was like, yes, yes, I'll do it for free. And she was like, okay, shut up. And I was like, please, I'll do it. Um, but yeah, so I got to write that one. And um, I worked with Star Wars on a couple other smaller things. Like I did a few comic books for them. And then um, I did not expect to get The Princess and the Scoundrel, which is Han and Leia's uh, wedding and honeymoon. And when they contacted me for that one, I just about fell on the floor. Do you get so do you get to just fill in the blanks and just make it up or do they have a, like a kind of basic storyline or is it just coming from no, your head? I got like a they sent me a pitch that was like maybe a half a page long if that and it was just basically like here's where it would fit in the timeline and it was not really like a constraint other than you know we had this much blank space that you can fill in and and that was it they let me do pretty much anything I wanted to within it which is amazing. Is there anything you put in that they're like, nope, you can't do that, and made they made you take out? Uh, not in this one, but she there killed a bunch of students. Aside <laughs> from killing kids, which we're okay with. Uh, um, no, no, this one was pretty. It was pretty okay. I had to change a few names on things because Star Wars has its own like way of naming things. But in Rebel Rising, the Rogue One story, I did try to slip in a character, and they made me change it. And I realized later that that's because that character was being used somewhere else. And so that was kind of a cool, like, I felt like I had the insider knowledge. So I'm like, oh, I know where that character is now. And then they were like, you must not tell. And people show up at your house, start watching. <laughs> I think a lot of people think that, like, I lived on the Skywalker Ranch for a while. And I'm like, no, no. no. Did you get to go visit? No, I've never been there, but I did get to go to the um, Lucasfilm offices in San Francisco. So that was really cool. Oh, cool. So when you say you're working with Star Wars, what is it like? Who are you working with over there? Is it the writers or producers or? Um, With Rebel Rising, I did get to work a little bit more with the people who were doing the movie. I got to read the script early. That's why I had to go to San Francisco because you're not, you can't walk out the door with this paper. Yeah. Um, And they won't even let you take your phone into the room. You're like, (laughs) you got to leave it. No pictures, no nothing. Just sit there. You get some like coffee and that's it. Um, And so it was still really, really cool. And I got to read read the script before it had finished being shot even like they hadn't even wrapped on filming and some of the script changed so that was a really neat neat thing to see as well but but beyond that it's mostly just working with the editors so how did they choose you did they had they read some of your previous books and they really liked them yeah I actually ended up asking a publicist I was like why why did you pick me so so I can make sure I do it again (laughs) (laughs) and she just said that they were looking for science fiction authors and my debut was science fiction and I had like been very vocal about my love of Star Wars, which I always have been. I'm totally a nerdy fangirl. And so they were like, oh, well, you seem up our alley. And I was like, I am. Love me, please. <laughs> I see I see you have the child on the shelf behind you. Grogu. His name is Grogu. Sorry, Grogu. I stopped watching after the first season. I what? I admit that. I know. I've seen every episode like a gajillion times. I just put it on in the background sometimes. The Mandalorian is my boyfriend. He's He doesn't know it, but he's like my secret boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> so would you? you would obviously 
after Princess and Scoundrel, you'd love to do more books for them. Like that would oh, be oh, that a great was, experience with them. Yeah. It was such an amazing, like, I mean, I, I know you know about this, Josie, like some editors you work with and it's just, it can be difficult, but with Star Wars, every single person I have ever worked with has been passionate and they just really want it. They just all want to make cool things for the fans. Like that's all, their whole goal is to do that. And they don't want to get in the way of the artist. They just want to let you do your thing. And they're just amazing people to work with. So yeah, like I would, Star Wars has me for life. And speaking of editors, what kind of editing is there in Kindle Vela? Is it just you or do you hire your own editor? Like what's the situation with editing for this? Uh, so I'm going to tell myself a little bit, but it is just me. Um, I Because of the nature of it, because I'm doing one episode a week and it's very scheduled and I don't want to break that schedule. Um, I put an outline on my Patreon on Tuesday which lets the Patreons vote a little bit earlier and they get a little heavier of a voice in it. And um, then by Friday or Saturday, I have the episode written and edited and uploaded by Sunday. So it's wow. a pretty fast schedule and it's it's just a one woman operation with the reader votes. I couldn't even imagine. I can't. Yeah, it's I, been a lot of fun. Like the, the story has already gone off the rails from my original idea. Like I, I kind of <laughs> did a little bit of that where like, oh, I know the end game. I know who the characters are going to end up. There's some secrets. I know those. But it's already gone so far off the rails. But because I have to make up multiple choices, basically, I can. I have to think through every possibility and then just let the luck of the draw or the luck of the dice dictate how it goes. How many episodes will it be ultimately? Is there a number or just whenever you feel like you're ready to end it? <laughs> it kind of depends a lot on, on everything. Um I'm at about 45,000 words. So in book speak, that's about halfway done. So I would imagine it'd be about 40 episodes, but maybe I'll make it 42 to hit the the true meaning of life, the universe and everything. Um, I haven't read the, your latest one. You uploaded today, right? Did yes. you upload another one today? I, I haven't read that one yet because I've Get been real close a whole... Oh, oh, they've already kissed. I was going to say, I, I noted the kiss. Look close to hotter kiss. Lauren's <laughs> like, no, no, no. I mean, <laughs> romance. I definitely like, voted. I want a little more. Come on. The horny librarian. <laughs> I, I definitely voted kiss him, but don't trust him, which seemed to be, I think, the predominant vote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Heck yeah. Well, I, I so think c- I said both. I was like, kiss him and trust him. Just get up in that. <laughs> Go ahead, girl. What you waiting for? You're like, you're a kid. You got nothing to lose. She's holding it. on to those knots. She's going to use those. I haven't got that far because I'm a slow reader, but. No, she gave. Oh, you have it. Oh, don't spoil it. Uh, <laughs> she's got it. those knots. She's holding on to that ribbon. I feel like she's going to. Mm, keep reading, Lauren. Yeah, yeah. You got to get to 18. <laughs> yeah. But it was very. Okay, so is that character that. Oh, she's the 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 pet, the pixie, not pixie, the. um. Oh, Joan the Wad. Joan the Wad. Is that based yeah. on um Queen Mab? It is not. It's actually a Cornwall like legend. Okay. And I did not realize it until I started researching that area, but she's a Cornish queen of the pixies. Uh All right. We got to talk about the research that you must have done for this. Did you go to Cornwall? No. No. I (laughs) wish. Google Maps. I have done so many like street views on Google Maps. And actually, I had such a hard time with that section, section with Joan, because, um, I, I knew the exact place where I wanted it to be because the pet, everything other than Emmy and Puck is real. Like the petroglyphs that they find, the rock carvings, those are all real, but I couldn't find them on Google Street View because they're off the map. And so I kind of had to dig into some archaeological records and figure out where they were and get as close as I could. And so you do this all in one week? Pretty much, yeah. 
<laughs> How many hours a day do you spend writing? I mean, it's definitely my full-time job. Like that, that is what I do for, for the whole job. Yeah. But how do you keep switching from one book to another? I mean, I imagine focusing <laughs> on one book is hard uh, enough. I can't yeah. imagine just switching between different storylines. It does help that the other ones have outlines and they're very, very detailed. So the adult science fiction, I have a chapter by chapter outline. So whenever it's time to write that one, I just look at the outline. Like, okay, this is the chapter that I do. And I sit there for a few hours and do that one. And with my co-authored book, my uh, co-author and I go back and forth. We have an outline, but we can change it a little bit on the fly. So I couldn't get those done without the outline for sure. Wait, yeah. co-authoring a book, how does that, I've always wondered that, how does that work? Are you passing off chapters or mm-hmm. like, so, so one, one, writes, one of you writes a chapter and then the other person writes a chapter? Right. It's, there's, um, this is a, a young adult historical um, and it's not been announced yet. That's why I'm being cagey about it. Yeah. I was um, like, who's your co-author? I, You're not saying. I, I don't think I can say it. It hasn't been officially announced yet, um, but it's going to come out from Sourcebooks next fall. And um, I'm writing the boy point of view and she's writing the girl point of view. And so she writes a chapter and then I'll edit her chapter. We're doing it in Google Docs. I'll edit hers and then write mine and then she'll edit mine and then I write hers and we just go back and forth that way. So were you, did you, I, don't, I mean, I'm not trying to get information I shouldn't have, but did you know, did you guys know each other beforehand or were you just thrust together? We knew each other from a Slack group. Um, we've never met in real life. Um, since then, we've had like some FaceTime calls and things like that, but we just met in a Slack group and I was working on an adult book that has since not sold, which is the sad misfortune of publishing sometimes. Yeah. And she was working on an adult historical book in a different time period. And we just started talking about how, oh, we wish we could have written a book about this time period because this cool thing in history happened. And then we were like, hey, what if we just wrote it together? And we just started going back and forth and a whole book came out. <laughs> I've not, People ask me all the time, would you ever write with someone? And I just, I don't know. I can't even... My husband's a writer and I, he doesn't even see my books until they're done. Like I've just finished a book, but it's not done yet because I haven't given it to someone else to read. Like I don't, I don't know how to tell a story until I've told it. And then once I've told it, I'm like, ah, yes, here's the story I meant to say. Like, I don't, I don't know, but that seems like such an interesting way to go about things because there's a lot of room for something fresh to happen when you're working with someone else. Like, especially if you're going through and you're editing what they just wrote, it spurs you into writing yours. You know what I mean? You're like, we're always trying to one up each other. I mean, and so if there's no, a kissing no. scene, like the other one tries to make it even better. Or if there's a torture scene, the other one tries to make it even gr- gruesomer. <laughs> so we are always trying to one up each other. But I am that way with my other books, like the adult science fiction. I've written this one solidly four different times. And I've had to write it so many times just to figure out what the story is. So it's a little different for every book. Wait, what do you mean you've had to write it to figure out what the story is? Like, like you read <laughs> it and you're not happy with it and you want to change certain things or? Yeah, I, I wrote it once as a young adult and I showed it to my agent and she kind of immediately pinpointed the, the inspiration and she's like, oh, this is basically fan fiction. And I'm like, yeah, it kind of was. <laughs> and I realized I didn't want that. Um, so I rewrote it entirely from scratch and um, I kept getting the feedback that the stakes weren't high enough. And I realized that it needed to be adult instead of young adult. And so then I've, I'm in the process of rewriting it and I hope to God I finally have it right. <laughs> mm, that takes so much patience. How, how do you make a, an adult book young or young, go from young adult to adult? Like, what do you change? Is it the age of the characters or the situations or? Every single thing. Like there's not, the only thing that's the same is the setting. 
like the plot, the characters, every, I don't even have any of the same character names. Everything was changed about it. Mm-hmm. I just really liked the setting. So I kept the setting um, and kind of like the main turning point. Um, but that that was the only thing that has has made it through. But this is a genuine question that's going on right now. Like I've seen a lot of TikToks, people talking about like, well, what is the difference between fantasy and young adult fantasy? It's like, it's not just because there are a lot of people who write clean adult fantasy, which means that they don't use swear words. There aren't a lot of super graphic sex scenes, although there there are love scenes. They don't use sexual violence is completely out of the book. Like that's not going to happen. And they're like, what, you know, why, why would this be young adult? And there are some people, especially if they're female authors, they get pigeonholed in young adult. They sort of get ghettoized, like mm-hmm. that you're not writing an adult book because you're not a man. And huh. it comes off. As, and then there are men who write totally teenage stuff, like the whole Mistborn series by Brandon S- Sanderson. That feels very YA to me. It's very clean. It's, it's got teenage characters in it. And yet that's considered an adult fantasy because Brandon Sanderson said it was. And I don't see the difference personally. Like, well, I don't what, know why that wasn't YA. What, what are the hallmarks of YA? I keep wanting, like, do you write? Yeah, sometimes it's... Do you write more simplistically than you? Because you're writing for a certain age level? Or is it just dude, like having characters that young adults can relate to? I, I keep trying to figure that one out. For me, I, I still <laughs> my answer from Alan Gratz, um, who is, is a young adult middle grade author. And he just always gave the best answer for this. So I'm, I'm absolutely stealing from him. But he described it as middle grade is a character trying to find their place within their community, like within their home or within their school or something like that. Young adult is the character trying to find their place within the world. And adult is the character trying to reinvent themselves after having already established one identity. That's interesting. Whoa. as well. That's how I always approach it. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. I'll have to think about that when I'm ordering books from now on. I struggle with the whole middle grade thing. Because they, uh, the publishers market it to ages 8 through 12 often, or 10 to 14. And I'm thinking 8, you know, 3rd grade, 7th grade. Where does this book belong? Does it belong yeah. up in the YA section under nap, the new middle grade label? Or does it belong in elementary fiction? I really struggle with that, too. Yeah, I'm, I, that's, that's a great definition. But I think that that's not the one that publishers use. I don't know. There, there are political aspects to it. They're just, if a woman's written it, they go, oh, oh, it's probably YA. And they don't Ew, consider really? it. Yeah, no, okay. totally. Like the Poppy War is a, is a very famous example that is 100% adult book. And the author had never published Young Adult, as far as I know. But people like cross-referenced it and stuck it in Young Adult all the time. Because it was written by a woman. It probably had a f- female protagonist. And yeah. How did women get pigeonholed as YA authors? I mean, there are more of them, I guess. But like, because we get because p- men think we're children. I don't know. <laughs> it's really sad. It's really sad and sick. And like women get degraded a lot. And then and then it's sort of a lot of people talk down about YA. Like it's a it's a simpler form of fantasy. It's not as complicated as male fantasy. And it's like, oh, no, you're wrong. Oh. It really Beth across the universe is a super complicated story. It's mm-hmm. deep and rich, and there are a lot of great questions in it. I, and in a lot of parts of it, I even was when I was reading it, I was like, "Why is this considered YA?" I was like, "More power to you!" But I thought that a lot of that, a lot that was in it, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know the section yeah. I'm talking about. I was like, this, "This is more adult than it is YA." So anyway, I just I I struggle with it a lot because there are times when I'm like, "Who cares? Just call it a fantasy." But I don't know, like, why call it YA? Why call it adult? And I know so that do- a lot of people need it for. Like they don't want well, their kids reading about. Is it straight up the homework. age of the characters in the book? 
No, because there are a lot of, like I said, Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn series. It's a teenage girl and it's told from her point of view. I mean, honestly, when I'm looking for a book for myself to read and, I, and it's about a teenager and it's an adult book, I kind of skip it. I'm like, no, I want to read about, you know, somebody more like my age and my, myself. So that, I find that really interesting that they would have put that in the adult fantasy. Josie, did you set out to be a YA author or you just happened to come up with stories that got classified as YA? First of all, I never thought Starcross was going to get published. I just want to let like everybody, I had no idea. Like I seriously was just, I thought I was supposed to be a screenwriter. Like that's what I, I studied that at NYU. Like I thought that I was going to be a screenwriter. Then my husband pulled me over to my bookshelf and was like, you don't read screenplays. You read fantasy novels. And so I, he was like, try to write a book. And I was like, okay. And because I had no idea what I was supposed to do with my life. I was at this huge turning point because I had a lot of screenplays that like agents and people were reading and they're like, they're, it's really good. You're a really good storyteller. What's missing? We don't know. So I was like, why can't I sell? And he was like, you got to try writing a book. So I just was like, uh, the Iliad, I know. Shakespeare, I know. Because I, I studied classical theater at NYU. And I was like, so I know this stuff. And if I put the Iliad together with Romeo and Juliet, what would ha- how would I tell that story? And so for me, it was just like very Hegelian. It was thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and here's the story. And that's because those were the stories that I knew. Like I understood those books. And that's how I wound up with Starcross. And I was told I was a YA writer. And I went, thank you. <laughs> because I was so You're shocked. You're give me money? Great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sure. I mean, whatever you want me to be. Dude, I was bartending. I was like working in a nightclub until 4 a.m. at the time. I was like, yeah, I'll take that money. Wait, so, so Beth, Beth, you were an English teacher. Were you ever, I mean, I guess no one really has formal training as a writer, right? Or had you just... Like you went to school and you're like, I love writing or did you actually? I yeah, think I, guess I a writing course in college and I absolutely hated it because on the very first day, the professor was like, if you write fantasy or science fiction, you have no place in this class because I don't want a story that can be solved with a ray gun or a wand. What? I was like, that's not the point of fantasy and science fiction. Um, but it was like college courses and creative writing were very elitist, at least where I went. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very much a focus on literary fiction. And like, I just find it very boring. <laughs> we we talk about that a lot on this yeah. podcast. All the stuff that we had to read in school that everybody hated. But old dead white men wrote them. Exactly. So, or, it's all the old dead it. white men. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. There's creative, there's MFA programs, there's creative writing programs, but I never did it. I just, um, I learned by trial and error and I had a decade of like error before. I had <laughs> but in years, years to that's waste, such you know, commitment. That's uh, wow. Very stubborn. <laughs> oh, Beth, that's just amazing. But nothing's ever wasted. I mean, all of those... It, you work for 10 years, you have all of these great ideas. I'm sure, well, I know from myself, I've scavenged like bits and pieces of stuff that I thought it was supposed to be a play or I thought it was supposed to be a screenplay. And I wound up like taking bits and pieces and using characters and putting them in books and like, uh, no, I mean, they, they really did suck. <laughs> oh, mine, mine, not yours. Mine really did suck. There's a reason why none of them were published. And I can look at it now. Like at the time I was like, oh yeah, they're all definitely wonderful and good. But no, I mean, looking at them now and I'm looking at them I'm like, no, they're all terrible. And I just didn't know what I was doing. And I had to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, that doesn't mark take... how good you are. No, 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 no. It's, <laughs> I'm just talking about characters. I've read lots of stuff and I was like, who wrote this garbage? Like there's di- and also dialogue is still like the hardest thing in the world for me to write because nobody yeah. talks like some of my characters do. I read it back and I'm like, nobody talks like that. That's just ridiculous. <laughs> but I. 
I no, but I feel like every single time you write, every time you sit down to write, you learn something from it, no matter what. And there's no, but Aileen, you're you were kind of right when you were saying, how can you take a class to become a writer? I mean, there's nobody that can really tell you how to write a book. Like you can take all of these classes, you can be in a writer's group and exchange work with people. And the more you read and the more you do it is what really makes you a better writer, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And honest people who you feel safe with that you can give your work. I mean, that's learning by rewriting and by reading other writers, you know, like I, the more I read, the better, I think, I hope the better I get, you know, <laughs> I kind of feel like either you're born a good writer or you're not. And I know you can get better. Okay. No, yeah. No, shaking your head no, no. Aileen. Okay. That's why I'm telling it? you, you just have to keep writing. She's if aliens. Okay, we've 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 known each other since we were six. And Aileen has always wanted like we took creative writing classes together when we were kids and we did all this writing. And she's got such a great talent for it. And she's so funny, but she won't write. Like she just is like, I can't, I don't know. It's so painful to sit and write. Like there's just <laughs> something about it that's brutal. I mean, it's part of my job now. Like I'm a creative director, so like I I basically give people opinions on their stuff that they write, which is great because I don't have to do the writing. I can just have lots of opinions on other people's writing. Um, but there's something so hard about making yourself sit down and write. I mean, even as writers, don't you find that? Or do you just love it so much that you can't wait to sit down and start writing I mean, every day? Every job sucks it sometimes. Like there's there's just no, like every job sometimes is just the worst. But then I tell myself I could be grading 90 essays written by 10th graders <laughs> or I could be playing in this magical world, and that's a much better option. Yeah, but Beth, absolutely. you're you are super organized though, and you're like one of those you don't miss your deadlines, and you have a deadline every week. Everybody's gone but us. You have a deadline every <laughs> single week, and you you hit it. Like I don't know if I, I'm very disciplined with my writing. I write, you know what I mean. I write every day, but I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could deliver a full chapter every single week because. I always run into more problems than I thought I would, no matter how well I sit down and and uh, I have my outline, I have all my beats planned. I There's always those days. Some days I only get, I get less than a thousand words and other days I get 1500 to 2000, but it's like, I can never, I mean, hats off to you that you're capable of that kind of self-discipline that you can sit down and do that. Well, that's how I am with my novels, how you are, where sometimes it's a lot and sometimes it's not. But I think because it's due every week that I'm thinking about the chapter, like I make the outline by Tuesday and I'm thinking about it as I go. So it's not, it's not as big of a thing because even though it's, my chapters are usually between 1500 and 2000 words and I have all week to think about it. And I don't know, it it just forms a little bit better. I don't think I could do two chapters. Mm -hmm. Whereas with my other books, I can maybe write, sit down for one day and write two or three chapters in one go but I couldn't do that for Museum of Magic. Like the format aside, like it takes me that long to think through it and then I get it out. And speaking of Museum of Magic, so I want to talk with you a little bit about the names that you chose because there is no Nick Bottom, Massachusetts. (laughs) I was going to ask that same question. Yeah, I was wondering about that too. We're all from Massachusetts. (laughs) (laughs) Like Nick Bottom, that's a character in a Midsummer Night's Dream. There's no yeah. town name that. That's awesome, though. So why? <laughs> why? Please explain why. It's just because of, of Midsummer Night's Dream. And I didn't want it to be Salem because I feel like Salem is like I use Salem in a world without you, one of my other novels. And I just didn't want to have another Salem witch story. 
but it's still going to be Massachusetts and, and New England. But um, but yeah, I just I just made it up entirely because of uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, which is you know Buck. Yeah, cool. And why? <laughs> but why? There are a lot of Shakespearean references in this, and I was just wondering why. If was it just a random thing that you chose, or is th- is this going to lead? No, no, you're not going to tell me because it's got plot implications. No, I can tell, I can tell some of okay. it. Okay. <laughs> um, it started off a bit random, um, in part because I met my husband. We were both on the uh, high school production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Aww. So I was like, I'll slip a little bit in there and like, we'll have a puck. Um, but then as the story progressed, and I did, I did not figure this out until about um, the fifth or sixth chapter, I realized that Puck's name was going to have a major, it's a major plot point. And it, the whole ending is hinging upon his name. So what happens is um, Emmy is a descendant from a Salem witch, or not a Salem witch, but a New England witch who came up, immigrated from England. And she makes the witch bottle, which is an actual thing in history mm-hmm. that's designed to protect people. And um, when Puck arrives, the witch bottle breaks and she has to remake it. I had 15 different items that could have been in the witch bottle and I drew them out of a hat for my Patreons on a video. And those were the items, but one of the items that wasn't drawn was going to be something that they found at the Globe Theater. And that started me thinking about like Shakespeare. And, and then the, one of the items that was drawn was a page from um, Demonology written by King James, hmm. who had a link with Shakespeare and Macbeth and, and all that. So it just sort of evolved from there. But really, well, I was looking into some of the research um, aspects of it, like the King James Bible, like demonology, that you have all these moments. You have the wardrobe that um, with the hearts in it. Mm-hmm. That's an actual, uh, it's actually in, I'm sorry, not the Tower of London. Where are we? Holy rude. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm like, no, it's not the Tower of London. We're in Scotland. <laughs> anyway, um, or Cornwall or wherever the heck it is we are. Um, but I was like, this is really well thought out. And it felt to me like either you were, went, totally down the rabbit hole in your research like is that what happened you spiraled out of control yeah i was like I there's a lot of that yeah i mean it helps i'm a total nerd and i love history and i love research so like i was looking up holy root and i was like oh that cabinet looks really nice and it has a heart on it let me find all the research on that and yeah it's just a constant rabbit hole i <laughs> god i wish Alyssa were here like if anyone loves research and homework, it's uh, it's our fourth podcast member, a nerd. It is kind of like a uh-huh. homework every week. <laughs> but li- is it, listening to the two of you talk makes me realize how much of an author is in every book. You know what I mean? Because every author is interested in different things and has different a different point of view and things. And and it makes me go back to like all the books that we read by dead white guys who obviously their presence in the world was very different than like women's presence in the world at that time. And their yeah. perspective, you know, and that is what shaped us growing up. So I don't know, you like nothing when it comes to books and fiction, nothing is objective. You're getting a little bit of the author and everything and they're help shape, helping you shape your own opinions and view of the world. Which is really, you guys are very powerful is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very powerful. <laughs> so the Speedwell, Elspeth Castor, these were all just... <gasps> L- Lauren loves the name Elspeth because... It's my middle name. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Have you ever met anybody <laughs> person with that name? Probably not. No, well, it's, it, there was an old... Um, my, when I growing up, I had an old book of fairy or um, nursery rhymes. And there was one that was... Uh, Elizabeth, Elspeth, Betsy, and Bess all went up to find a bird's nest. They found a nest with five eggs and they all took one and left four in. And my name's Elizabeth. So I always loved the Elspeth version of that. Yep, that's right. 
Do you know that rhyme? Yeah. So my name, I'm not necessarily really Scottish. I have a little bit of ancestry there, like this much and that much German. <laughs> but the Irish and the Scottish and the English came a lot later in the, t- the turn of the century. And that's the closest ancestry we have. So besides the German, right? And somebody liked the name Elspeth. And that's how I got named middle named Elspeth. My mom would not allow them to name me my first name, Elspeth, because of Elsie the cow who was on a milk carton. Good job, that's Kathy. That's my middle name. <laughs> Isn't that so funny? I remember my sister Chrissy was picking my niece Jessica's name. She didn't want, she was like, I love the name Ashley, but I don't want people to call her Ashtray. And I was like, I can't, I, you can't allow the name that you want to be dictated right. by how your kid might get bullied. Like, no, you, yo, my husband and I spent so much time coming up with names and then thinking of all the awful names that other kids would come up with based on that name and then rejecting really? them. I mean, as someone named Aileen who got called alien, which whatever, I thought it was funny. I That's didn't awesome. really care, but like, you got to think about those things. <laughs> I got Giuseppe. Giuseppe. Yeah, I was called Giuseppe. Uh, what was I called? Oh, Josephine Angelini likes to eat her fettuccine. That's another one. I don't think I ever heard that one. That's great. <laughs> I actually love it too. Like, I think it should be a kid's it. book. <laughs> yeah, there you go, Josie. <laughs> I'm going to write the fettuccine book. Um, yeah, but you can't, I don't think that you should not. Anyway, I love the name Elspeth. And I've always loved that you had that middle name. I thought it was so exotic for Ashland, Massachusetts. <laughs> I always did wish that my Elizabeth was actually Elspeth, which is where I named the character. <laughs> and so the tarot cards, we got to talk a little bit more about the tarot cards. Was this just like, so you're pulling names out of a hat, you're rolling a dice, you're pulling a tarot card. There's so much chance that There's happens. a lot going on there. Yeah. It was, I, I tried to come up with every possible way I could do chance. Um, but the tarot cards also came a little bit because I had been trying to do tarot cards in a book for a long time. My book, A World Without You, I keep looking over at my shelf because I'm looking right at it. Um, but my, my book, A World Without You takes place also in Massachusetts. And um, in that one, I, I seated in a character that I thought I might spit off into another book. And there was going to be like a ghost story with tarot cards. And so I had been like, gathering the tarot cards and it never worked out. And then when I was trying to come up with ways to make this story about chance, I looked at my show. I'm like, oh, there's my tarot cards. Let me add those in. Um, and I actually, they're right here. I have a, a set of tarot cards. I don't actually know tarot and they're cheat cards because it has like what the cards <laughs> on the front. And so I have to draw my cards and use the cheat cards to figure out what all of them mean. <laughs> it's okay. I go online and read about it. I don't. Okay. I feel better then. <laughs> there are a lot of cards. I don't know what they mean. It's like, but they sound so cool. Like the King of Cups or. Yeah. And then they all mean something different depending on which way it's flipped. Mm-hmm. There's two meanings to each one. That's right. So if you pull it reversed, then or transposed as Beth calls it, it has a different meaning. So, but how do you pull it upside down? I don't get it. Well, you, you just shuffle, shuffle it. How you flip it? Oh, yeah. Okay, I've never done tarot. My, my mom was so Catholic, like Ouija boards, tarot cards. She like drilled into me that the devil was literally connected to them. So I just, I know, right? Yeah, I'm from the south. <laughs> I got that that Irish Catholic mom, and she's just like, "No, the devil's in it." And I'm like, "Okay, I won't go near it. Don't give me nightmares, woman." So I never did tarot or anything like that, but it fascinates me still. Oh, yeah, because it was forbidden. Yeah, yeah. That's good to have a little forbidden stuff in the world, you know? Naughty little Catholic girl. I was, no no longer. (laughs) And speaking of good little girls turn bad, 
Have you, Beth, have you ever had one of your books banned? Challenge. Yeah, not that I know of. And I think Challenge. I'm straight and white. Um, but no, I, I, not that I know of, which is pretty sad because I'm straight and white. Because you've written some stuff that could have been banned in a good yeah. way, like in a good way. <laughs> well, yeah, but I, I do think that the people who are in charge are the ones who are leading the book banning are targeting very specific people. And it's not, it's not about the book. It's about the author in a lot of cases. And it's very telling on how racist and homophobic those people are. Agreed. It's so disgusting. Yeah. I mean, Lord, honestly, Lord. how can anybody be proud that they banned a book? That's what Hitler did. Right? Like, oh, oh, and what I love, what is it? Mothers for Liberty. It's literally the exact opposite of Liberty. Yeah. That was cutting off information from mainly children just seems so wrong. Like, why Why do you want to? That's how fascists indoctrinate children. Yeah, it's yeah. disgusting. Yeah. Josie, that should be your goal. You should try to get a book challenged. I guess I just never write anything that's written people. I always have gay characters. I, I always have characters who, you know, because that's part of my life. I always have people of color in my books. I always have people who speak different languages than just English. There's something, you know, because that's what I wake up to every morning. You know what I mean? My husband. It's just that the book banners are very, they're, they're not just targeting the books. They're tar targeting the authors in a way that's going to hurt them financially and drive them out of the ability to make their art like it's not uh, very right I, honestly i really hadn't thought about it that way i had just been looking at it as material only and it's a really good point that you're making beth because i really was like why why is this book being challenged it just doesn't make sense to me there would be something i, I and i would read the book and be like i don't understand why people are having why anybody could have a problem with this book you know, it just doesn't seem like if there are 20 books that are just like this, that are talking about the same thing and those books aren't being challenged, why is this one? And you're right. It, it, it has to do with the color, the gender, the race, the sexual orientation of author and not really the material. So are the publishers doing anything to support their authors or is it scaring publishers off from certain authors? That would be terrifying. I mean, they're not doing enough in my opinion, but yeah, it seems like it. Like get behind your authors, support them, fight back. But it's like a poster that one of them made, but I'm just saying, y'all. <laughs> that that poster, Beth, that's gonna change the world. I mean, <laughs> they they these publishers, I mean, I mean, God bless them because they do pay my bills. But at the same time, like there's things like BookCon and things like that where the publisher will have a table and give out hundreds of copies of books. They should go to these areas where these books are being banned and give out those books to yeah. every kid that walks by. That is brilliant. Yes. I would love it if they would do something like that. But I also don't own Penguin Random House yet. Oh <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder what the chatter is, though. I wonder if they're actually making the conscious because they have to sell books. So obviously, if certain okay, books are controversial, so they're thing, oh. as soon as a book is challenged or banned, those books get bought. And, it, and they check out at the library because people want to look at them and they want to know why. They do, but it's not as proportional and it kind of depends. Like there are some authors who they get banned and then they shot up the New York Times bestsellers list because everybody was interested. But for that one, there was, you know, 20 other books that didn't have the publisher support and didn't have the reach to True. do that sort of thing. And then they sink and then their numbers tank and then the publisher doesn't pick them up for the next book. Right. It's surprising how many, what a large chunk of your initial sales that first week depend on libraries. Libraries and schools, especially if you write for younger readers, um, a huge chunk of your sales in that opening week, which is what gets you on the list or doesn't, a lot of that is dictated by whether or not there are libraries who are buying them. 
and schools. Yeah, and there, now there's ghost bans where there's a lot of school librarians who, who don't want to deal with the issue of the book being challenged. So they just don't buy the book in the first place. Right. So it's like a shadow ban and it's you can't trace that. You can't track it, but it's still definitely affecting particularly minority authors. And again, it goes back to who are the authors shaping the minds of everyone in this country. You need diverse brains. You can't just yeah. all be the same type of people. I always say it goes back to the whole mirrors and windows pedagogy that, you know, teach kids to see through a window and see themselves in literature. And if you take those books away that represent everybody, then you're just seeing one. Josie, you have your own imprint now. So once you start accepting other authors. I know, right? Once I get, I gotta get my own stupid gotta book. Gotta get this book first. first. <laughs> <laughs> right? I am. I'm trying. I'm trying. Beth, how how does how do, how do you feel about the publishing industry? I mean, how much has it changed for you over the years? Oh, it's changed a lot. Like I definitely got in right when young adult market was at its highest peak. And the market in general has just kind of slowly trickled down and down and down, like across the board, but in young adult in particular, because we were in a high bubble and then the book market a little bit crashed. Um, so the way it's changed me personally is that I always plan to have something in self-publishing and I always plan to have something in traditional publishing because traditional publishing definitely pays the bills for me, but they can pay the bills one year and then the contracts are slow and I need something to sort of bridge the gap between them. Mm-hmm. And so I, I like being a little bit in control of my own destiny. That seems really smart. And also sometimes publishers are just like, it's a good book. We have one like it already, or yeah. that that's not the direction that we're going with this. And why should you let that kill a book? You know, if you could find another market to get it out there, do it. You know, what's changed so much though? Like why is the industry changed? I think the way a big had? chunk of us in the YA market is that we haven't had a huge hit. It started with probably, I mean, Harry Potter made a huge impact on the publishing market as a whole. And then from that, we went from Harry Potter to Twilight, which was a bit in response to Harry Potter because it had the romance. And then from Twilight, we went to Hunger Games because that was also in response to Mm -hmm. Twilight, sort of went into an anti-romance realm. But then we didn't have a major hit in young adult from that. And ever since then, we've, we've had certain individuals who have hit big, like John Green, but that helped John Green's writing and not necessarily all the contemporary young adults. So it just hasn't trickled down the way that a lot of publishers banked on. There's, they just don't, they don't know what people are going to read and they don't know how to get books to readers anymore. If something can be huge, like it could sell a ton of copies because the TikTok went viral and th- there's no control from a publisher oh. over that. There's no way for them to, to control that marketing. And there's no way to say that, that they can repeat it with another book. It really does feel like kismet. It's sort of like one book will hit and there's absolutely no reason for it. There's no, like, we can't tell the difference between this book and another book. It just got lucky. And that sometimes that just happens. How to get the books to readers, how to reach, how to market anymore to a younger generation, especially when you're dealing with YA books, like Gen Z is totally different from the millennials. And in the 10 years, 10 plus years that since we entered publishing, it's gone from marketing to millennials to Gen Z. And it's totally different now. There's nothing that's the same. It sounds like publishing needs to rethink their whole business model. Like the music industry got completely disrupted. That's exactly what's happening. And it sounds like publishing is still trying to do things the old way with the like, oh, but we'll have authors promote themselves on social media because social media is a thing. But you can't really rely on it. Yeah. Like the Kindle, your Kindle, that seems like a different way to think about getting a book out into the world. Things like that are so interesting because it's I mean, it's modern. It's like a living, breathing thing that you can help shape. Like what an interesting approach that is. 
publishing just seems like a dinosaur. <laughs> in some ways it is. I mean, any major big corporation, which the big five publishers are, like it moves slowly. And so right. I do like that in self-publishing, I can publish a chapter a week. I can move at my own speed, which is a little faster than the giant cogs. Beth, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Get to see the episode. I know. I gotta gotta go. I gotta go read it. (laughs) I'm following. I'm I'm waiting for the token. That was wonderful. And thank you so much for coming and talking about Museum of Magic. And I can't wait. The Princess and the Scoundrel. I'm so excited for you. And it and thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Okay, everyone. I guess that's it. Nice to meet you, Beth. Nice to meet you, Beth. Nice to meet you guys. Everything. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Fiction Between Friends. To find the show notes for this episode or to subscribe and get new episodes delivered automatically, visit fictionbetweenfriends.com. Also, if you happen to have a moment and you've liked what you've heard, please help support our podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. We would be immensely grateful. Thank you for listening. Thank you.